I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Walter Hood, creative director and founder of Hood Design Studio in Oakland, California, a 2019 MacArthur Fellow and winner of the 2019 Dorothy and Lillian Gish Prize. A professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Walter has run his social art and design practice since 1992. He is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Black Landscapes Matter. Walter's current projects include a proposal to address the infrastructure of Washington, D.C.'s Tidal Basin, the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, and the renovation of the campus at the Oakland Museum of California. Walter's mix of fearlessness and humility creates an openness that results in the creation of surprising, profound, and evocative spaces. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Walter. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thanks for inviting me. So just wanted to start, I I know it's early in the morning where you are, but what's on the top of your mind right now? Uh, Another day, almost feel like Groundhog Day, you know, it's like I stopped looking at my schedule because it became too stressful. So every morning I get up, (laughs) (laughs) I have coffee, try to read the times, and then I look at my schedule. (laughs) So so every day is um, I try to make it a different adventure. Mm. at least in my head, even though it seems like it's going around and around and around. And and how have you been thinking about and processing the pandemic? Like what's been your personal response as well as perhaps philosophical? Well, it's a very interesting year, 2020, because um, 2019 was probably the most awarded year of my life. <laughs> and to go from such a high to such a low <laughs> was pretty, pretty epiphanous. But also coming out of last year, I started three projects, which all kind of ended up in writing a book. <laughs> so I have three books that I'm writing. So I've really been in my head the last six mm. to eight months. And it's actually been a really a nice welcome and a nice sanctuary. It's also a couple of the books were about kind of this moment, but the last one was about my work over the last 20 years. And as I started writing, it became about this moment. So in a way, (laughs) my last 20 years is about this moment. And that's been this kind of revelatory Mm. kind of exercise for me in thinking how to articulate that, Mm. right? So that the work doesn't somehow become so narrowly recepted, but it can somehow be broad enough to still talk about where we are today. Mm-hmm. I guess in what ways did, you know, and I, I assume you're referring partly to the MacArthur Genius Grant you had last year. Mm-hmm. In what ways did having that experience and then going into this year sort of shift your thinking, you know, to have such a momentous mm-hmm. year and then go into a year like this that's been quite stalled for many of us or liminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it's kind of interesting where, you know, from the Gish Award to the MacArthur Award last year, it seemed like my work had finally been, how can I say, looked at in its broadness, right? Because for me, over the years, I 
have been critiqued as being very broad (laughs) and not very focused. So it was a welcome to the decisions that I had made in my career Hmm. to be rewarded and to be thought about not within the kind of professional boundaries, but in much more in society Mm -hmm. and probably more than the MacArthur, the Gish Award, which the Lillian Gish Award was, I found out about that early in the year. And that already was this other kind of award that made me feel like the work was reaching a broad, broad audience, you know, because if you look at the people who won that, it's like, there's no rhyme to reason, you know, to go from like, you know, Spike Lee to like, you know, a composer, you know, to like Walter Hood. (laughs) And so to me, that was an interesting thing. And then the MacArthur came along. And so on one hand, professionally, academically, that was kind of rewarding. But then when the pandemic hit, it was almost like, you know, the chair was yanked out from under me and it was like, but there's another side to this, Mm. right? And it's just not about the awards, but it's also about continuing to do the work, Mm -hmm. right? And so it was in a way revelatory and now it's become mandatory that, you know, I get this workout, you know, and one of the books that we're working on is came out of 2016 a conference we had here at Berkeley. And of course, I entitled it Black Landscapes Matter. And I invited some friends to come and talk about that moment uh, in 2016. I think that was Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin. And, you know, four years later, we're back at this moment. And last fall, the University of Virginia asked to publish that work. And so in a way, we were already working on this book, you know, when we were shut down. And so that book, is at the publisher now. It's coming out next month. Mm. And a second one that I'm working on is, which thankful for the MacArthur, I'm funding it through that, is the International African American Museum, our ancestors' garden in Charleston. I'm writing a book on that through Monticelli Press, where if I've invited a dozen historians, writers, artists to contribute. And this is about the museum, but it's really not about the museum. It's really about, again, this moment to talk about what does it mean to build a, a museum in Charleston, South Carolina at this moment. You know, the Calhoun statue just came down there. I mean, the whole sort of debate about, you know, the Confederacy. So, again, the flag came down last year. And so it just seems like this moment. Mm. And so this book is scheduled to be finished up this fall as well. So these conversations that are rising out of COVID-19 or relating to COVID-19, how are you imagining or thinking about how these relate to the landscape? It's reinforced a lot of, you know, things that, you know, I've believed in the past is that, you know, America has not really, you know, dealt with its legacy, uh, its legacy of difference, its legacy of race, its legacy of colonialism. And I think, you know, all of these things are coming to bear now. They're becoming visible because we're seeing, you know, the most vulnerable be impacted at an alarming rate. We're beginning to see our environments different because they can't work the way they normally work. Mm-hmm. And so we're beginning to see our world differently. You know, I drove through downtown Oakland a couple of weeks ago, which I hadn't done for like five months. And it's pretty powerful to see these these edifices where we spent all this capital just empty. And then 
the places where we haven't spent anything just full and brimming. These are our neighborhoods. And so to me, it should really give us a wake up call that these places where we thought, you know, we had to build up, you know, that's a, to me, that's a bygone 20th century idea of, you know, putting capital into a place and expecting economic windfalls to somehow leach back out, mm-hmm. right? That we should be investing in these places where we disinvested, you know, for an entire century. And uh, we should be investing in people that we disinvested in. And, you know, just to hear us call them, what we call them, frontline workers or some mm-hmm. shit like that, um, <laughs> you know, to me, which is just kind of a slap in the face. Yeah. You know, these are people who had jobs before the pandemic. You know, these were people who labored before the pandemic, you know, and it's all of a sudden now we want to put this label of heroes on them to make us feel good. Mm. It's patronizing. Yeah, it's kind of sad that, you know, we can't see things clearly at this moment. You know, and I'm not saying everybody feels that way, but it's kind of this normative view is kind of like, oh, we have to kind of push it out here to feel better about ourselves to a certain degree. But at the end of the day, you know, we haven't invested in a large group of people in our society. We mm. just haven't invested it for like, you know, probably since the early 80s. You know, we just yanked that rug out and we just expected things to continue and get better. But we basically, even from our public education, our public services, all of those, what we call it, that net, <laughs> we just kind of just pull that net. And we're now seeing people are just falling through. And we need to really build up more resiliency in our social and cultural infrastructure. Hmm. And that, to me, I think we have to begin by critiquing the infrastructure that we built Mm -hmm. that actually has kept things separate and not allowed people to kind of move, move upward. And a lot of this has to do with just simple things. just like, you know, pay people fair wages, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, for doing the work that we expect them to do. Connected to that, in an article recently expressed your distaste for the word placemaking which which I really enjoyed reading <laughs> as a kind of colonial attitude. Mm. And in this context of sort of shifting urban environments and gentrification you were talking about, um, how do you think about making landscapes that are shifting landscapes that contain a specific aesthetic already? Like what is the kind of um, approach you'd like to take to moments like that and get away from this idea of imposition and placemaking? Yeah. It's a really hard thing to do because in a way we're through our experience, right? We're trained to kind of look at things a certain way. And I'm teaching a studio right now and we're, my students are struggling with this and I'm struggling with it too, because there's a semiotic that we've set up through these signs and symbols to accept certain people living certain ways. Right. And so as a designer, I can come in and go, there's nothing here. (laughs) Right. And therefore I can project versus trying to cultivate a way, which I hopefully I've done over the last 20 years where you go into a place and there is no expectations. Right. You kind of script yourself bare and you kind of accept things on face value. Right. I mean, you accept things being the way they are because people are there. Mm. And if people have lived there. You know, like in a lot of communities, generations have lived there. There then must be something there, mm. right? And so if you can find those things, it's really powerful. There's a, a little antidote. I've just started a project here in Oakland, and it's for a housing project. And when I first started my firm back in 1992, I worked on this project. And me and um, 
social scientists went into this project. It was a hot public housing project, won all these awards in the 60s, you know, failed by the 80s. Basically, they wanted to break it up by the 90s. And I went in with a Kevin Lynch approach. I had all these analysis maps, you know, signs and symbols, ambiguous, you know, negative, all this. <laughs> and there was this young black woman, her name was Janet. She stood up and she just ripped me a new backside. Mm. How dare you come in here and say those things? How dare you? I know everybody here. And then she took me out, started knocking on doors and introduced me to people mm. in this place that looked like a maze to me that was undifferentiated and all that. Now, last week, I'm on this Zoom call for this project. And there's Janet, right? She's on <laughs> the Zoom, <laughs> right? 26 <laughs> years later, now she's like the head of the project. Amazing. Right? And I just told her, I said, you know, you started my career. You actually taught me something. And she just went off and was like, yeah, I was a revolutionary back then. Anyone who came into my space, I just took them to task. And I was like, thank you. Because if that hadn't happened very early for me, I probably would have gone down that kind of typical road of, you know, you do this kind of analysis, make this design. Mm -hmm. But what she basically taught me was when you go to a place, don't bring anything with you other yeah. than your intelligence, <laughs> mm, Yeah, you know, and then allow yourself to listen, see and uncover and extract and, and then create. Right. And yeah. that was one of the smartest things that ever happened to my career. Yeah. To, to, to basically go in and, and challenge the assumptions you may have and, and yeah. make new ones to build from. Yeah. Which is really hard, but it's one of those things that I, I was telling my students yesterday, I can design for anyone, right? Because most of the time I had to design for people who didn't look like me. And I said, your challenge is you have to be able to design for everyone which means you have to be uncomfortable, put yourself in a place and design for someone who doesn't look like you because mm -hmm. the majority of my students don't look like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're not people of color. And this is the thing that goes back to your earlier question, right? About, you know, patronizing and all of this stuff. It's, it's kind of that empathy of being able to respect difference, mm -hmm. right? Respect, not diversity, difference, right? Mm -hmm. Respect something that, you might be ignorant of and don't know, but learn and kind of see what that might even look like, feel like, taste like. And I know it's really hard to do that. You know, I think I, I understand the white experience in America. <laughs> I think I can, I think I can like riff on that. <laughs> right. And so those are the kinds of things that I think we just need to be more open about. Absolutely. And, and it also leads to this idea of the commons and, you know, a space for people to come together right now. How are you thinking about that at a kind of a time of such division? And, and is there potential in design to move the conversation, to create a, a, a commons? I know it's abstract a little bit. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's abstract. I think it's very romantic to think that in a country that is still divided, I would say probably still half of us don't want to be together. <laughs> yeah. So it's really hard to have a common, you know, when half the family is like, <laughs> I'm in the backyard, you know, I mean, and so I just think there's a lot of work to be done because I think we forget, you know, and I've been saying this a lot because I forgot. I mean, I was born in apartheid America. I've watched 
desegregation happened, but I haven't seen any reconciliation. Yeah. Tutu never came and did that here. Yeah. I mean, there was just never this, this moment where, you know, everybody agreed that, yeah, we need to reconcile our past because our past is, it's collective, <laughs> but we need to reconcile it. And reconciliation doesn't mean, you know, one side gets trashed and the other side doesn't get trashed. I was just in South Africa, took my class to Joburg in the spring, and, you know, we were at the courts of reconciliation, one of the most powerful spaces I've ever been in. Absolutely. Right? To be able to see the place where people were penalized and held, and now to see it as a place of reconciliation without erasing. Mm. The thing, the penal thing, right? The penal thing actually meaning the prison, which was not just at one moment, but it was at an early colonial moment. So it really, that place really documents a kind of colonial past into a, a post-colonial moment, you know, which is a powerful space to be in. And provides a phenomenological experience when yeah, you're yeah. there. And, and which leads me to my question a bit about Charleston which first of all, I, I'm very much looking forward to seeing when it's completed. How were you thinking about this phenomenological sensorial experience of moving through it? And it's kind of what I mean about the, um, what design can do, how design can provide mm -hmm. that experience to actually confront something. Yeah. Well, I, I do think design can deal with this notion of reconciliation. I mean, we see Brian Stevenson's work. Mm -hmm. We just need to have those spaces in which we can be prophetic. And we don't have to, how can I say, cloak things, or we don't we don't need spaces that have everything in it, right? I mean, if you think of uh, museums for people of color or spaces that commemorate groups, marginal groups, they pack everything in there, right? Versus just talk about one thing. Let's just talk about one thing, and let's talk about it in a powerful way. Versus, you know, talking about everything. Okay, I'll give you your civil rights, but can we put baseball in there? You know, you know, I'll give you your your baseball, but can we put music in there? You know, all of these things versus saying, you know, let's talk about, you know, slavery. Let's talk about uh, lynching. Let's talk about redlining. Let's talk about segregation. Let's talk about these things and try to somehow unmask them in a way. Uh, to mm -hmm. kind of pull them apart so we kind of understand them to a certain degree. Because when we pack them all together, there's not a lot of room to kind of understand things, right? It's kind of like you just get this kind of pastiche kind of understanding. Oh, yeah, that's part of history, but it's not deep enough. Like reconstruction in school, you know, reconstruction is kind of like a blimp. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, slaves were freed. We had reconstruction and then Jim Crow and then civil rights. And, and most people don't really understand that, you know? And I was writing this piece for this Black Landscapes Matter, and it occurred to me that people in the 50s and 60s were looking back at people who were fighting in the teens and 20s, and even 30s. And they were looking at people getting lynched, and they still had... <laughs> the bravado to go out and march, right? And so that's the kind of carry on. And so even us today, we look back at, you know, John Lewis and all that, but we're not looking back 50 years before that, where it was just even, 
how can I say, more excruciating. It was even more painful. And to begin to sort of connect that, yeah, there are these moments, and it takes about 40 to 50 years where these cycles play out. And we bring that history forward, you know, and sometimes we forget that previous history. Mm. And so I think to be able to have spaces in which we can become learned, I do think that's the kind of first road to the common, right? To have these spaces where you might feel uncomfortable and there might have to be this kind of overreach in the beginning. You know, a um, friend was telling me about, you know, how the, the Germans had to go through this. And I have a friend who's my age and he was telling me that when he was a teen, he had to confront his parents, you know, because he was curious, but no one was talking about, right? That previous generation. And then, you know, you walk through the streets of Berlin and places now and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was somewhere, I was like in the Bauhaus somewhere in, um, in Weimar and everything is idyllic. And I go into this courtyard, it's this beautiful <laughs> orange, you know, beautiful paved courtyard. And I'm like, wow, this is really beautiful and nice. And I look down on the ground and there's a plaque, it's like SS headquarters, like 50 people murdered. I mean, it was like, you know, in this idyllic thing, there was this other story. And it had this power to it to put things in context. That, mm-hmm. yeah, I could look at this place on one hand and marvel at its architecture, but I could also understand culture. I could understand, mm-hmm. you know, that past, that it's okay. I can reconcile that. And it's somehow in this country, we don't feel like we can reconcile that. So there's very few spaces that you go to and you feel that. You know, there's very few places and the places that we try to do it to, we, we kind of, again, create this kind of pastiche layer to it so that no one's impacted. You need to be impacted. Right. And so for the Charleston Museum, we talked a lot about not cloaking things. Can you describe a bit of what it looks like? The core idea is to create a garden that references our ancestors who were slaves who were brought through the Atlantic passage to Charleston, we think upwards to 40 plus percent of the African diaspora actually landed there, perished there, or through the diaspora went south or went north. So it's hollowed ground. So it's one of the few spaces that we can actually look at. We did the archeology span and say, this is a real site. And what makes it powerful is that it was a park before the building came on it. And so people were already using it. And to me, that's, that's half the battle already, because in the imagination, it exists as a place. Mm-hmm. And what we're bringing to that place is an interpretation of a slave ship hull through a new water fountain that stretches out in front of the harbor and it has at full scale these etched bodies that water will fill up and drain out. And so in a way, as you're looking easterly, you're in relationship to those bodies that were lost in the travel as well as onshore, as well as through the diaspora. And I wanted to, you know, put the body out there Mm. because again, that's, something that we don't reference a lot, right? And particularly horizontal. I wanted it to be a place where people can come and think. And, and it was a reference to Toni Morrison's uh, chairs that she put out 
about a decade ago where she she said this prophetic thing is like there's no place for me to sit and think about my ancestors mm. and so she went to all these ports sullivan's island i think down in louisiana and she just bought a typical bench and put a plaque on it, called an ancestor's bench and we were out at sullivan's island there was about 20 of us taking a tour of I took people to plantations. I took people out to Gullah Geechee communities. We went to Sullivan's Island, Mother Emanuel Church. But a couple of days before we did the charrette for the design, we went out on these tours. And the thing that blew my mind was we were out on Sullivan's Island. And this is the mouth of the harbor at Charleston, where the slaves were taken out of the hull of boats, put in pest houses washed off and quarantined before they were brought in to be sold. And the only thing there in this museum to civil rights, in the back room, there was a small exhibit on slavery. And all of the artifacts seemed like either they were, you know, lent from some other place, right? And there was one image in particular of the Brooks map, which is a lithograph that shows how slaves were packed into the ship. And it was a Xerox. And it was so badly Xerox that it was almost like, it looked like a, a textile or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I took a picture of it with my cell phone, didn't think anything of it. We go outside and the historian is describing where the pest houses could have been or whatever. And there's the bench that Tony Morrison placed. And everybody like ran over to the bench, took out their cell phone and started taking pictures of this bench. And I almost wanted to cry because I was like, here we are today in this place, and there is no tangible evidence of my ancestors here. And here we are taking a photo of a bench that was placed here by a Pulitzer Prize writer. And then we go out to a sign that's from the Park Service, and Michael Allen, who worked for the Park Service, described how long it took him just to get the sign, Hmm. right? And you're standing there at Sullivan's Island, looking out at the harbor, looking out at the Atlantic, and you're standing in that landscape. And there's nothing in that landscape that talks about that moment. And and that's when I knew, is like, we got to do something here that is beyond a touchstone. We need to do something that has a, a larger narrative to it. And I think just going through that process led us to take this committee through a process where we talked about, okay, what do we want bodies to be under the soffit of the building? Do we want, you know, people to make badges because slaves made badges? Do we want to build a warehouse and put figures in it and tell people about who died? But we dealt with the kind of the ugliness. I mean, I wanted people to really kind of think about that time. This was not a, a good time for my ancestors by any means and to romanticize it. And so, you know, we have a few figures in the warehouse that are reflective. You have to walk through this narrow piece. Um, we have this fountain. We have an ethnobotanic garden. And so we try to tell these stories as you move through the landscape. Uh, the entire ground plane is made up of seashells that are taken from the Atlantic Ocean. So there are all of these kind of metaphorical, allegorical elements. It really scares me, this project. I want it to be really good, but I'm like really afraid 
right? Mm. You know, it's like that moment where it's like, I don't know what all of these things coming together are going to produce, but yeah, I'm hoping it produces something that is unimaginable. Mm. Right? And that to me is the part of design, which is the powerful part of design when you don't know. Yeah, it takes on its own life once it exists. It has to, man. And, you know, it's uh, I'm doing these sculptures right now of these figures, you know, trying to figure out how abstract to make them. Should they be full scale? Should they be twice? as? So just coming up with, you know, having to work through all of these these kinds of decisions. And in a way, for the first time, it's kind of this freedom to to be black, mm. just to be blunt. It's there's a kind of a freedom in the work on this project to be black and to be able to talk about things in a way that's not kind of professional, but, but really kind of, I don't know, cultural. I mean, I was saying something about flash of the spirit uh, and this historian, Bernie Powers, who's on the committee was like, Walter, what did you say? <laughs> and he immediately understood what I was talking about. And sometimes that just goes over people's head, but we then started talking about the, the role of reflection in African culture right? Light and darkness. Mm -hmm. And these are kinds of things that, you know, I've been just curious about, you know, through my readings and things like that. But I'm also making these connections to my own upbringing. You know, in North Carolina, you would go to a cemetery and you left poinsettias or you left irises and you always folded back the foil on the, on the plants. Never occurred to me that this practice had been practiced generationally from Africa because everybody needs a ride to heaven. And so when the light hits the foil, you get the spark. And so little things like that, you start making these connections, you know, back in your past. And in a way, it's kind of liberating to be mm. able to talk about it in the work. That's not, you know, just this work. The work is yeah. kind of like, you know, I think about light and shadow in all the work though. Mm. I wanted to bring up your proposal to address the flooding and crumbling infrastructure <laughs> and the tidal basin in DC. You created a fictional novellas to present your ideas. Could you share your approach with us? Why, why these novellas and, and what's your sort of plan proposing? Yeah, that's funny. Um, when we were asked to work on the tidal basin, we were excited, one, because it was like, this is not a competition. We just, you know, we're going to get you together with these other firms. And we're just going to talk and brainstorm and, and figure out, is there a way to, to think about this differently? And we're like, yeah, we're game for that. And as we started working, you know, the world changed, of course. But I started thinking about last year, there was a big competition on resiliency, sea level rise. And they did a, you know, teams met out here in the Bay Area. And I didn't get involved in it. But, you know, this notion that we can hold back the sea, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like, for one, it, I kind of take a step back and go like, huh, we can't? <laughs> and then you kind of look around and you see where, where this comes out of, right? You know, this notion of control. And so talking with my studio, I was like, I don't want to do a project to fix DC. You know, because this is the easy thing of what we do. You're called in, you get a project, let's fix it, right? And let's, can we just talk about DC in a way that 
maybe uncovers why it needs to be fixed and why it's broken. And so for years, I've always commented on DC because I live there. It's a swamp. It's basically a swamp. And I remember maybe eight years ago or something, I was there on like the hottest day ever recorded in the summer. I arrived at night, got to my hotel. There was no air condition. And I was like, what do you mean there's no air condition? They were like, the water is too hot, you know, coming in, the public water is too hot to chill. And evidently the pipes can't be that low in DC because of the water table. And so it was so hot that all of the potable water coming into service was too hot to basically chill. And so there was no air conditioning for like three days, right? I mean, it's like completely breakdown. And so we were like, okay, can we talk about this fiction in a completely different way? And I was always been intrigued by the fiction of DC as the origin story of America. If you look at the early drawings, it's almost as if Rome was kind of the beginnings of DC. There's the river, <laughs> we come out of the river, you know, we are on the hill, you know, all of these things. And so we basically filled in a wetland to basically create our ball where Lincoln sits, there's like a three-story high-rise underneath. And so this whole thing is like sinking. And so we decided to like do a four-part novella to talk about the culture of the landscape. Mm. And what we wanted to talk about then was how different people might come here and actually experience the place in a different way through the pieces. And so there was, you know, a black family coming for a family reunion and instead of just coming to the African-American Museum, I wanted to make this larger understanding that our history is not just there in this new building, but it actually is in Robert E. Lee's plantation, which was the Freedmen's Village on the other side, which a lot of people don't know. And so their journey, they leave the cemetery and then they go over to the city to one of the first AME churches that, of course, is in Georgetown, where we don't think of black people, uh, but black folk were kind of the first people in Georgetown. And from there, they go to the museum, and then they find their way back around to the MLK Memorial. And so it's really this kind of story of talking mm. about how people, different people might come to this landscape and have a different understanding about it. Because again, I started out talking about reconciliation. Again, we have to kind of think about not everybody's seeing this place in the same way. Right. How do you personally see the National Mall and DC? Before this, <laughs> before this four years, I used to go to DC a lot. I lived in DC in the 80s. So my early experience of DC was just a racist city. I was constantly stopped, harassed by police. I was actually picked up in Georgetown and taken to jail once. I had friends who lived in housing projects. Uh, right there at the Capitol. So I have this kind of mixed feeling of D.C. D.C. is a chocolate city, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, 70s and 80s. You know, I mean, you know, it's the place where this is where my Southern brothers came up and, you know, came to the city and they they prospered in this place in the alleys. And so on one hand, it's a black city for me. Right. Yeah. And that part of the city has never been advocated for. It's never been. Nobody's ever fought for that. You know, we don't mm -hmm. even have statehood, right? And so this idea of then putting all this pressure on these monuments, I've never had an affinity for them. 
And so anytime I've talked to like the planning commission or whatever, I'm always proposing these other things. And of course they're like, that ain't going to work. Right. I mean, and so it was never, you know, part of that, but I have to tell you for probably like 10 years when I was going to DC, I always ran to the Lincoln Memorial Mm. and what blew my mind was the second inaugural address. And every time I go there, I read that Mm. because even today it has power because this is, you know, where Lincoln's really questioning the union. You know, he's questioning the country. And every time I read that, it's like he could be talking about today. Mm. And that's one of the touchstones for me, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, it being a black city. And then this notion that the city wants to change, right? The landscape wants to change. (laughs) And this is the thing. It would be great if we had a, a landscape that told the national story about resilience, a landscape that told the national story about diversity, a landscape that told the national story about difference and change versus an allegorical landscape that talks about American exceptionalism and leaves out a lot of people, Mm. a landscape that talks about our ability to control nature through edifice and through hidden infrastructure. You know, I would rather be with the one that talks more about resiliency, right? And puts faith in, you know, people who've been living in this landscape and learn from how they've been able to live in the landscape. And so hopefully those allegories or those novellas that, you know, we talked about, you know, one of them talked about infrastructure and this kind of thing. But, you know, another idea is to just let it go, Mm. you know, let it go. And what could it become? Because in those stories, of those different groups, I do think there's something to be learned. How we've not been able to deal with heterogeneity. You know, like on the tidal basin, you know, it was a beach. (laughs) And then black folk wanted to come to the beach and so it's like, can't be a beach anymore. Take the beach away. You know, it's the baby in the bathtub. It's like this country, if you go and look at our history, it's like, again, it's like, oh, they want to mix. Let's just get rid of the thing. And this has been this kind of idea of, you know, separate but equal. We can partition it. And when we decided to say, yeah, we want to be one, not everybody wanted to do it. And I think we're still Mm. part of that. And I do think the nation's capital can actually help with that. You know, it's kind of interesting what the mall has become, right? It's become kind of a static backdrop. Where before, if you think of the March on Washington, it was a proscenium of power. Mm. To see King in front of Lincoln meant something. Now it doesn't mean anything to see anyone in front of Lincoln. We kind of lost those moments where they really meant something and people were interested in mining that meaning and allowing it to help us understand where we are today. And I do think the placement of MLK between Jefferson and Lincoln is a very powerful thing if we talk about it. Mm. Do you think we're reaching a place or a time where where the notion of a monument or a memorial is being redefined or can be redefined? And do you think we've finally moved past statues of men on horseback? (laughs) We're at a moment where we're questioning it. It's yet to be seen. It's really yet to be seen because if, again, if we still have half of our population that is still wants that origin story, to be this very (laughs) exclusive thing, then somebody's going to make 
a statue and put it over there because we forget, you know, the daughters of the Confederacy didn't fight in the war. They were relatives of people who fought in the war, which came later in the early part of the century. So it's not like we built these things like right at the war. These things actually happened years later. Mm. People started to go like, we need to remember. And so who knows in a few years, you know, once we go through this. And I think that's why I think this moment now is a moment that we should overreach to a certain degree because there's always the other side, right? Mm-hmm. There's always that, that other side, the reciprocation of where we are today in the future. And I would love to be in a place where we're not making monuments, where we're not really commemorating things, where we're making things to celebrate ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Collectively. Because mm-hmm. once it becomes a monument, it's like, I made one, did it. Yeah. Like someone was talking about the fountain that I'm doing at IAM as a monument. And I'm saying, no, it's a fountain. Mm-hmm. It's just a fountain. Yeah. Once you call it a monument or memorial, you take away the mundaneness of it. And I want my pieces to be part of the everyday. Mm. I want them to be part of that mundane experience. It's like uh, I always use the example of uh, Campo de Fury. There's a heretic. I think it's Bruno. He's in a black robe. He was burned at the stake. And he's still in the middle of Campo de Fury. And Campo de Fury is a flower market. It's a market every day. You know, it's a place where tourists get used to get drunk at night. You know what I mean? But he's there ominous. And most people don't even see Bruno, right? I mean, he's there. And so this notion that we can't chew gum and talk or whatever, walk at the same time is kind of ridiculous to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I mean, I think we can take on that responsibility of having good, bad, in the middle, around us constantly, telling us, helping us navigate. Because prior to the Civil War, I think J.B. Jackson wrote this, that monuments were put up to remind you not to do things again. Mm. And I think he was like saying, after the Civil War was the first time we actually made monuments, not to the cause itself, but to the people. Which is a really powerful thing if you think about it, right? What he was saying is we didn't make a monument to the Civil War that ended civil strife in this country. We ended up building monuments to the battles and to those heroes Mm. versus, I think I write in Black Landscapes Matter, what if after the Civil War, we did build a monument to the end of slavery and the end of civil strife and the beginning of the most heterogeneous society in the history of the world? Would we have followed right? that? <laughs> right? But yeah. I'm just saying, but if we had built it, people would have yeah. had to agree to do it, is what yeah. I'm getting at. And then imagine the rituals that could have followed that every year that talked about a union versus not doing that and actually allowing these two things then to just keep you know, being separate. And that's what has manifest. You've said in the past that you like to think of yourself as a cultural interloper. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> you said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which I which I mean is is clear in a lot of what you've described today, but I I would like to ask, you know, how this has helped orient you when you're facing a new project. How you draw on that? Oh. I used to get introduced all the time in lecturers like Walter, Walter cares about people. Walter's interested <laughs> in people, right? And I always found that like so the other designers just hate people. Am I like <laughs> the only one, right? But you know, I like to think not about kind of social factors or per se. Culture to me is 
even broader today because place, I think, is slowly being removed from how we might think of that, right? I mean, mm. since we have this new ability now to not be tied to one locale per se, and we have an impact on these other environments that we place ourselves in. And that to me is intriguing, mm. right? I've always been intrigued, you know, why, why is California different than New York, right? And I'm reading the ecological history of the U.S. and um, this one geologist is saying the reason why it's different because it's different. They were two distinct places, right? And he goes back with a meteor that hits northern Mexico and, you know, breaks things. And he's like, some things were able to make it over and some things were not. And so you start thinking, and wow, so if places and spaces are different and people in those places, then I'm really interested in those stories. Like in Southern culture, I used to hate being from the South <laughs> until I came West. And then I could understand the South better, right? Mm. And so, you know, in my 40s, I figured out, yeah, I'm from the South. I tell stories. This is what Southern people do, right? And no one told me that, hey, you're from the South. You can do that. But it took me going back to the South and listening to a lot of people going like, huh, they sound like me, right? I mean, and so, you know, going to different spaces and being around different people, if you listen, there's so much you can draw on. Mm -hmm. There's so much there. And then you start making these connections. And then the world starts making connections for you, mm. right? It's like Oliver Wendell Holmes, I think, in pragmatism. If you reach out, the world will meet you halfway, right? It's that kind of optimism, right? That if I put it out there, someone's going to, might not be everyone, but if I put it out there, something's going to like come halfway and we're going to have that conversation. And I've been, you know, lucky <laughs> that in some projects, you know, that is manifest in these wonderful ways that I would just never have expected if I didn't accept the process. Mm. One little example is Buffalo, New York. We did this thing called the Solar Strand. And the campus engineer, who's also an artist, Al Gilowitz, was working on the project. And one day, the landscape architect was like, to redo this entire landscape is going to cost $10 million or something like that because we're replacing topsoil. And after the meeting, Al came up to me and was like, Walter, you know, you know, we only have the money for the thing. What do you think about just letting the landscape go? You know, we have a little patch over here that we haven't watered and done anything to. And you get all these kind of weed things. But what do you think? I was like, let it go. <laughs> right. And two years later, we are a national wildlife preserve. Hmm. right at that moment. And so that, that thing of like, Al, he works here. He's been here. I'm this professional coming in, you know, just having that conversation with him in that place allowed something else to manifest. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, if, 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 if you can get to that point where you can let things go at, at that moment, right. Where there's that local knowledge, there's that kind of local thing that's happening. It's just going to make everything much, much better, different, unexpected consequences, which I think can be beautiful in design. Hmm. So final question, as we emerge from this pandemic, as whenever that may be and, and get through 2020, what's your greatest hope? My greatest hope is 
that we've actually made a lot of change while we've been in this pandemic. I think it would behoove us to wait. I think right now we're sheltered in space. I think we can do a lot of work right now. We can do a lot of work right now. Our highways are not as full. Our CBDs are not as full. The way we were doing things, there's time to start moving. And some cities are, you know, trying, you know, reducing street loads, you know, turning them more into pedestrian areas. I do think now is a moment where we can be a little self-critical about our consumption, about the things that we never paid any attention to. Mm. My fear is we're not doing it. And we're going to come out of the pandemic and we'll just go back to what we think is normal with these band-aids on. That's my fear. But I'm hoping there's enough people out right now making work. And I do see it in our work that we're doing right now. There are, I have clients who called and they want to do something different right now. Mm. They see it as a moment to, to invest in places that they maybe never invested in before. They do see it as a moment to come to the aid of people that they never imagined that they would come to the aid before. So I do see that. I wish, I wish our government saw it. Mm. I'm getting more of it from the private. I wish our government saw it. I mean, I wish our government said, yes, it's time to invest in our neighborhoods. It's time to invest in our people, you know, and allow a lot of that other investment ideas like, oh, I got to bring in Facebook. I got to bring, and this is what we think out here is like investment. I got to bring in these companies and then they go away. Like downtown Oakland, a couple of companies was like, yeah, we'll come and we'll bring 5,000 employees. And of course, they are all in San Francisco, left us high and dry. Right. And so instead of that, let's just go to those neighborhoods. Let's use that investment dollars to create healthy neighborhoods and let those other places take care of themselves. So I'm hopeful, even though I have those moments. (laughs) I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Walter, thank you so much for coming on today. It was so great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you, guys. You're starting my day out. Now I got a lot to think about. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.